Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's get those out this morning and open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I did, uh, I just noticed uh, that one of the, I made a last minute change to my sermon and I did not include that change in the uh, worship guide. So we are going all the way to chapter 4, uh, verse 3 this morning instead of stopping at the end of chapter 3. So just adding on three more verses, it'll be fine, you'll be all right. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going from verse 15 to chapter 4, verse 3. And uh, as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes over the last several weeks, uh, I hope you've been noticing a theme, right? Solomon has put on repeat, essentially, that life under the sun or life under heaven is vanity of vanity, means meaningless, Right? So he's saying that a life lived without God is meaningless. It doesn't matter how this life turns out for you. You can be a complete moron or you can be the wisest person to ever live. And either way, if you live your life without God, it is vanity of vanities. Right? You can be in abject poverty or you can have the most money that anyone has ever had in the history of the world. And if you live your life without God, it is vanity of vanities. It is meaningless. Right? You can abs- do absolutely nothing with your life. Or you can be the most prolific inventor and agriculturalist or whatever it is that you do with your life. You can do that to the utmost of your ability. And if you live your life without God... It is the vanity of vanities. You can explore all the pleasures of this world, or you can set yourself apart and be a monk. But if you do that without a relationship with God, it's all vain. It's all vanity. Solomon says that it's like chasing the wind. It's pointless. Overall, on the surface of this, this book has been bleak, to be sure. Yeah, would you agree with that? If someone told you over and over again that your life was meaningless, that's not someone that you invite to a party, right? That's someone that you avoid in the grocery store, right? And he has constantly been on repeat saying that everything is meaningless. Solomon is using a negative perspective in an effort to point us to our creator. He's saying again and again, nothing under the sun has ultimate value, right? It's not to say that there's things under the sun that aren't valuable, but they are not ultimately valuable. Right? Last week, though, we had a little bit of a turn. We had a little bit of a break in the clouds. There was some sunlight shining through as uh, Solomon began focusing on God for the briefest of moments. Right? In verses 1 to 15 in chapter 3, we looked at a second poem that Solomon had written. Uh, That's the second one for this book. And in that poem, we were made aware that there was a time for everything under heaven. Right? He said things like a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to harvest. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And it went on and on. Throughout that poem, there were 14 pairs of opposites that Solomon pointed out showing us a fairly comprehensive life cycle. 
right? If you live long enough, you're going to be born and you're going to die. You're going to have to plant and, and harvest that which you have planted. You're going to weep and you're going to laugh. You're going to mourn and you're going to dance. And on and on it goes throughout the entire cycle of life. And in that, we are told that everything from God, that, so everything that's not under the sun, everything that's not under heaven, everything that comes from God will last forever. He's the one that gives those cycles meaning. Right? There's no adding to it or taking away from it. And there's also no changing it unless God is the one who decides that it needs to change. Right? We're also told that the best thing that we can do in this life is to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Solomon tells us in that verses 1 to 15, tells us to eat, drink, and enjoy all of God's efforts on our behalf. Right, so we got a little bit of a shining light in a book that is bleak from the start. And at the end of this brief foray into cheerfulness from Solomon, uh, it, it ends rather abruptly because at this point he's going to go to another issue, those under the sun that uh, face in this life. So we're getting to see that again this week. The issue that he's pointing out is the issue of persecution and oppression that receives no fair assessment in court. All right, so that's heartwarming. Yeah, we're right back into the cloudy day. Uh, and then, if that weren't enough, he throws in a bit about death and judgment to make sure that everyone leaves today with a skip in their step. All right? So, with that in mind, let's see what Solomon has to say in our passage this morning. Chapter 3, verse 15, all the way through chapter 4, verse 3. Follow along with me as I read that for us. It says, Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. I also observed under the sun there is wickedness at the place of judgment, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirit of animals go downward to the earth? I have seen that there is nothing better than a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died, more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So you may have noticed we backtracked just a little bit into our passage from last week. We went back into verse 15 in order to grab a hold of the idea that God seeks justice for those who are oppressed. Right? Why does he seek justice for the oppressed and those who are uh, persecuted? Well, we're going to see a little bit of that in verse 16 from chapter 3, and the rest is going to come from verse 1 of chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 1, 
Solomon points out that there are acts of oppression that are occurring, again, we see under the sun. So there's this idea that this is separate from God. It's separate from uh, what God wants for this world. Uh, but this, this, these acts of oppression are occurring under the sun. And in these instances, those who are oppressed are broken and they're crying and they have no one to comfort them because the power resides in those who are oppressing them. And no one can comfort them because the power, the ones that can take away that oppression, resides in the oppressors. And so nobody can comfort them. And how can we see that play out in real life? Well, in verse 16 of chapter 3, Solomon points out that there is wickedness in the courts. Right in verse 16 of chapter 3, when Solomon states that there is wickedness in the place of judgment, when there is wickedness in the place of righteousness, he's saying that the judicial system is broken and that it often fails those who have been taking, taken advantage of. Right? He's saying there the courtroom is supposed to be a place of righteous judgment. We're supposed to have people in the courts that are supposed to uphold the law. They're supposed to uphold uh, what we have deemed as good and right. It's supposed to be a place where truth is presented and those who have broken the law are held accountable for the actions that they have committed. But there's a problem in the courts. Right? There's a problem in the courts in Solomon's day. There's a problem in the courts in our day. And it's the same problem that pervades the rest of the world. And that problem is sin. Right? Even the most righteous human judge has a sin nature that they must contend with. Right? And unfortunately, given enough time, there is going to be a situation where the wicked goes free and the righteous is imprisoned. Right? Sometimes that's going to happen by accident. Right? Solomon did point out last week, we are not God. Right? We cannot see from the beginning all the way to the end, and therefore because of that, there are going to be times when some of these righteous judges make a mistake. Right? They don't do things the, the right way, and not because they're intentionally doing it wrong, it's just they slip up and they make a mistake. And that might not appear to be wicked, right? It's just a mistake. But because of that, the cause of that mistake comes from the curse of sin in this world. We don't think correctly. Our minds are clouded. We don't see the things that we need to see rightly. And the impact of that is felt as the wicked go free and as the righteous are condemned. But sometimes it's not an accident that the wicked go free and the righteous are condemned. Sometimes there's intentionality behind a broken court system. Right? Sometimes there's something to be gained by putting the wrong person behind bars and letting the real perpetrator go free. I mean, it can be maybe money in the hand or maybe a favor owed, right? I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Right? Maybe it's darker than that. Maybe there's a threat of violence against the judge who doesn't give a desired verdict. Right, Solomon says that any way you look at it, it's all wickedness, or at least the part of wickedness. 
Right? The courts are broken due to wickedness. But in verse 17, Solomon speaks a word of solace to himself because he understands that there may be a season of wicked judgment under heaven or under the sun, but when we move beyond the natural into the supernatural, we see that everyone will eventually get their day in court. Solomon says that God will judge both the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. And after this, Solomon goes off on a strange tangent uh, about how humans are like animals because they both die and how that makes life meaningless. Uh, but I wanted to spend a little bit more time diving a little deeper into the reality of God's judgment here. Right? The fact that we will stand uh, one day before a holy and righteous judge, it deserves a little bit more attention than what we are presented with in chapter 3, verse 17. Right? The, the idea of God's judgment is all over the scriptures. I mean, I typed in verses that talk about God's judgment, and there were hundreds of them. And so I selected six just to kind of show you that it's everywhere. In the Old Testament, we find in Psalm 98.9, it says, Before the Lord, uh, for He comes to er judge the earth, He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Ezekiel 7.3, Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for your abominations. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. And there's significantly more than this all over the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Romans 2, verses 3 through 5, says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hebrews 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Revelation 22, verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I mean, these are stark words. These are stark promises that state that one day in the future, we will all stand before our Creator and we will be held accountable for how we have lived our lives. When the time comes for God's judgment, we need to understand that God will judge both our deeds and the purposes of our deeds. Right? God expects us to do all the things in the Scriptures that He has commanded us to do. Right? Things like living a righteous life. Things like helping those who are in need. Things like looking after the orphan and the widow. Things like bearing one another's burdens and calling out those people who are straying away from the Gospel. Right? God expects this from us. These are commands that we have been given. Right? It, we could go on listing another hundred commands that God has given to us, but to put it simply, the way that Jesus did when the lawyer uh, spoke to the ma to, I'm sorry, when Jesus spoke to the lawyer in Matthew 22, we are to love God and we to, are to love our neighbor. Now we can just break it down into those two things. 
And we're supposed to live our life with those two things in mind. But we have to remember that it's not just about doing all of these things. It's about why we do these things. Right? We can go through the motions of appearing to love God and to love our neighbors. But if our hearts aren't in it, God is not pleased with the efforts that we are making. Right? Jesus made this clear throughout the Sermon on the Mount when He was pointing out the failures of the scribes and of the Pharisees. So we have these men who are held up as the most righteous people in their community. And Jesus says, these men, they're praying in public, but they're praying so that everyone will see that they are praying. And they're praying so that everyone will hear their prayers and go, wow, that guy can really pray. Right? They're making a big deal about giving their offerings. They would come in to give their offerings in the temple and music would be playing as they walked through the door and they would make a big show of dropping off all their tithes, everything. like They're tithing even out of their, their uh, cabinets with all their spices in it. Right? So they're tithing off the stuff that comes in out of their garden, the money that they have, the, the food that they have. They're tithing on all of it, and they make this big fanfare so that everyone will see, look how much that guy just gave. Right? They're making a big deal about fasting. Right? He said, you know, when you fast, you're not supposed to droop your head and make your hair look all messy and everything. When someone asks what's going on in your life, you go, oh, I'm, I'm fasting. It's, it's very difficult. He said they're doing this so that people will see, oh, wow, that guy's really spiritual because he's fasting. He says, no, as you are praying, do it in such a way that it doesn't bring attention to yourself. When you give an offering, do, do it in such a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. Right? When you are fasting, make, clean yourself up and go up. Nobody should ever know that you're fasting. But in Matthew 23... Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. He pronounces seven woes on them in the 30, 23rd chapter of Matthew. In verse 27 of that chapter, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. They went through the outward motions of being godly. They went through the outward motions of being righteous. And it's like they washed up the tomb that held a dead body inside. God's judgment doesn't just focus on what we do. God's judgment also focuses on why we did what we do. And so all we have to do to receive God's commendations after uh, our judgment is to do the right things. Right? Just do the right things with the right heart and everything's going to be fine for us, right? Right? Is it? Just try hard. Try harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and God is going to put His stamp of approval on your life. As long as all the good stuff that you do outweighs all the bad stuff that you do, you're going to be fine, right? Right? Everybody's just looking at me. No, you're not going to be all right. That wasn't a trick question. It's, you're not going to be all right. But this is exactly how many people under the sun, many people under heaven, this is how they view the Lord, right? 
that's my granddaddy God up there that just loves, yeah, oh yeah, he's kind of acting a fool, but that's all right. I still love him. It's okay. But this is not what the Bible says about God. Right? God expects perfection out of those who he is going to call righteous and allow in his presence. Right? There's not, there's not a, a scale up there that shows your good stuff outweighing your bad stuff because God is holy, holy, holy. He expects you to be holy, holy, holy. He expects me to be holy, holy, holy. And I've got some bad news for all of us. We don't cut it. In Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. Right? There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Right, so even if we had the ability to do good, what does it say in Isaiah 64, 6? The prophet Isaiah says this, All of us have become like something unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and all of our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Right, we can try our hardest to do what is right. But because of our sin nature, Isaiah and Paul are both telling us that the best that we have to offer God from the best life that we could possibly live is a polluted garment. Right, the idea here is like presenting God with our best as a soiled diaper or a used feminine hygiene product. That's the idea that we have from this verse. Sin taints everything. Everything that we do, everything that we think, sin has broken it all. So we have no righteousness to offer God. We have no ability to present a holy, holy, holy gift of our life to Him. There isn't enough goodness in us to overwrite our sin because God expects perfection. Like we have a tendency to put the word just in front of our sin. Right? It's just a little gluttony. It's just a little lie. It's just a little theft. It's just a little this thing and that thing. But God doesn't put the word just in front of our sin. He said, that's a lie. That's gluttony. That's gossip. That's condemnation. There is no word just. And when we don't measure up to God's standard of perfection, then we are judged as guilty of rebellion against the King of Kings and against the Lord of Lords, we are condemned to an eternity spent without Him forever. And if that were the end of this story, then we prove Solomon absolutely right. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Or meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. Right? All of your good deeds are pointless. If this is the end of the story, we are destined for an eternity separated from God forever. And it would be meaningless if that were the case. But that is not where this story ends. Like we get to see things that Solomon never got to see. I'm not sure what he understood about our future as God's people. 
But the gospel message tells us that God knows that we are incapable of restoring our relationship with him ourselves because of our sin nature. And so he sends his son, Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, into our world to live perfectly for us. When it was impossible for us to do it on our own, God sent his son, Jesus, to take up our slack. To do what we couldn't possibly do. Where we have failed over and over and over again, Jesus has succeeded. Where we have come up short, Jesus has triumphed. Right? Where we have rebelled against God, Jesus brought him perfect honor and glory every day of his life. And then, Jesus willingly gives up his life for us. Right? Jesus willingly goes to the cross and faces the wrath of his Father for us. He took our punishment. Every last drop of God's wrath He took on our behalf. And in exchange, He gave us His righteousness as a gift. All we have to do is repent. Acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And repent. And accept our, the faith. Put our faith in Jesus and accept His righteousness as ours for eternity. In the end, we all still face bodily death unless the Lord returns before we die. But if He tarries, each and every one of us will come to the end of this mortal life and we will stand before the judgment seat of God and He will pronounce judgment on us. And depending on what we have done with Jesus will depend will determine whether we receive a verdict of guilty or not guilty. If we go before God holding our own righteousness out before Him, he will, be, he will declare us guilty, broken, sinner, unrighteous, unclean. Get out! We will be taken... to a place called hell for eternity. It's a place that talks throughout Scripture about the fire that doesn't go out, the worm that eats and is never fulfilled. It's a place where we were never designed to go. It was meant for the fallen angel, Satan and his demons. And when we fell from grace, it became a place for us too. Praise the Lord, that's not the end of our story. If we go before God, when we stand before His judgment, and we hold out Jesus' righteousness, that He has freely offered to us, if we have accepted that as a gift and present that before the Father, we will be told, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will set you over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This will make up for the brokenness of our justice system. This will reset all of the oppression that we have faced in this life. This is where all 
who have been persecuted will see the justice that they may not have received in this life. And this is ultimately what separates people from animals. Right? Solomon went on this tangent about how people and animals are no different because they both die. Well, this is where we are separated from animals because we are created in God's image. We have the opportunity to be present with God forever. Yes, we both die. Yes, we both go into the dust. But one of us can go into the presence of the Lord forever and the other is just dust. This is how we are different. And my question to you this morning is what have you done with Jesus? Are you attempting to walk through this life holding out your righteousness before God and say, this is the best that I have to offer you? Or have you seen the fact that that is not going to be good enough because you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you realized that Jesus laid His life down for you and He laid His righteousness at the feet of God and all we have to do is pick that righteousness up and say, look at what Jesus did for me. I have nothing good in me to offer you, but Jesus offers His righteousness on my behalf. That is what I present to you in, the, in this judgment. Have you done that? And if not, what is keeping, that, keeping you from that? What are you clinging to in this life that Solomon has pointed out over and over and over again? It's meaningless. Is it your wealth? Is it your freedom of choice? To live your life however you want to? Is it bad relationships? A job that offers you a lot of perks but keeps you from God because of maybe it's an unrighteous job? What is it that is in your life that you are clinging to so much that you are willing to bypass the presence of God? You're willing to bypass eternity with Him so that you can cling to what, 60, 70, 80 years of fun, enjoyment, safety, pleasure in this life? It's not worth it. What have you done with Jesus? If today is the day that you have finally realized that you need to do something with Jesus, I encourage you to come speak to me after the service. I want to talk with you through that. I want to help you realize the truth. And I'm happy to do that if that's you here today. If, that, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, then what you have done with Jesus needs to be shared with everyone else that you come in contact with. Now don't let the, those doors be the last time you think about Christ before the next time you show up here next week. Like I say every single week that you are sent. And the meaning behind that is you are sent into the world to tell people about Christ. What are you doing with Jesus? Think about that as we pray together. Father, I'm grateful for a book like Ecclesiastes. I mean, it's bleak. It's hard to read sometimes but it holds up a mirror to our life and shows us that the things that we are pursuing that are outside of you 
are not worthy of our time, of our effort, because it's ultimately meaningless. So God, I pray that each and every person here today is seeking to have a relationship with you through Christ. That each and every one of us would see that we can't have that relationship on our own. And so when we accept that salvation that is offered in Jesus, I pray that it would open our eyes to the realities of so many people in this world who are lost, dying, and going to hell. That when we leave this place, we have such joy in our heart that it overflows into the lives of these people. And we tell them the beautiful truth of your gospel. Thank you for Solomon. Thank you for the fact that he pursued after all this meaningless stuff so that we could see that it brings no hope, it brings no joy, it brings no fulfillment. We can only find that in your Son. And it's in his beautiful name that I pray. Amen.